You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. So here we go. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 50, 56. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they, were, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he, got, he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Astounded. There we go. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hard, hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the, so, to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So there we go. That's the word of the Lord. That's our text for today. Uh, in its context, Jesus uh, has just fed the 5,000 people, uh, 5,000 men, probably many more, fed them with five loaves and two fish. And now he sent them across the lake. And um, as I think about this passage and kind of wrestle with, there's some, there's some really intriguing and unique things here. Not only is Jesus the only one who walks on the water here, but we also have just some weird geography things. And it reminds me a little bit of my golf game, a little bit. I think I've got a picture here. Of a, of a slice. A slice is when you hit the ball and you get some side spin and it spins off away from you. In fact, that this is an actual picture of Alex Dodd, I think, hitting a golf ball. Here it goes down. He's got a slice. That's a slice. And so what happens is that when I play golf, uh, rare, rarely am I hitting the ball straight, like where I'm aiming. Uh, but the ball kind of curves way off to the right and it doesn't make any sense. And so as I play my round, if I want to have any sort of success, I have to aim further and further to the left in order to get the ball to land where I need it to land. And uh, it seems like, so often you call that playing the slice, is that you're aiming in a place that doesn't make sense in order to land in a place that does make sense. And it seems to me like Jesus is kind of playing the slice today uh, because he sends his disciples in a very interesting direction and they land in a very weird place. Um, and so right here, he, uh, this feeding of the 5,000 happens just outside of Capernaum, most likely. And he sends them by boat over to Bethsaida, which is sort of interesting. They could just walk, but they've got a boat, so he wants to send them that way. And then if you look at the geography here of how, verse 53, they set off. They're headed towards Bethsaida. We know where that is. And then they end up landing in verse 53 after the storm at Gennesaret, which is like behind them. So it's like, you know, throwing a Frisbee into the wind and it lands behind you. Why is Jesus doing this? Why does he send them off into this and then end up landing to do ministry probably among the people he just dismissed. And so it's just, uh, so scholars have kind of wondered why this is. They've wondered if this isn't an, uh, an error in the Bible. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's playing the slice. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. And I think he is sending them off into a storm and they will end up landing exactly where he wants them to land because he has a plan. Why does he do this? 
Um, I don't think this is an error in the scriptures. I don't th- think that this is a problem. I don't think this discredits the Bible at all. I think Jesus is playing the slice on purpose. He's going to hit them into the wind, and then they're going to land, and he's got a purpose for doing this. Sending his disciples into a storm, a windstorm, that ends up blowing them back right where they were, and the question we ask is why. Why is this? Is Mark getting this wrong? I don't think he's getting it wrong. I think there's two reasons that I want to look at today. Jesus sends them into adversity to expose their desperation and their density. Okay? So he's wanting to do something. He's doing something that doesn't seem to make sense in terms of geography, ministry. Like it's not a straight line. He's going to play the slice. He's going to go uh, in an out-of-the-way direction because he wants to reveal them. He wants to expose the disciples' desperation and density. And at the same time, he meets them in adversity to reveal his devotion and divinity. There you go. Nice parallel lines there. I think those are the two things that he's going to do. Expose their desperation and their density and then meet them in their adversity to reveal his devotion and divinity. This isn't a waste of time. This isn't a failed mission. This isn't an error in the Bible. I think Jesus sometimes goes out of the way, sends people on a detour, sends them into adversity in order to reveal something about them and reveal something about him. And so that's what I want to spend our time on here. So first, let's look at how Jesus sends them into adversity to expose the disciples' desperation and their density. They're just not getting it. Number one, verse 48, they are tormented by natural opposition. Verse 48, and they saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. The word painfully there is literally tormented. They're tormented by the wind. So Jesus sends them off. This time he's not with them. Back in chapter 4, I think it is. He was with them, and he's sleeping in a boat. Now he sends them in a boat. He's not even with them. I can imagine the disciples might be getting a little frustrated. Last time, we were on this lake. Jesus slept through the storm. He wasn't helping us at all. Now, he's not even here. Like, he sends us into a storm. He's not even here. He's on the the shore praying. And so we just see that, like, these human beings, these disciples, they're not able to provide the bread for the people. Remember, Jesus challenged them to offer bread to the people. They can't do that. Now they're in the, in the boat, they're going across the lake, they're seasoned fishermen, many of them, and they can't even do that. They are so small, they're so desperate, even just natural things. They're having a hard time making it through this windstorm, and they're struggling. Secondly, we see that they are fearful of spiritual beings in verse 49 and 50. When they saw him, Jesus, walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. So they're at the mercy of natural forces. They're also at the mercy of spiritual forces. They see someone coming across the lake. They don't recognize that it's Jesus. You don't see people walking on water very often. Um, Some people have tried to explain this away, that maybe Jesus was walking on the shore. This was an optical illusion. Maybe this is a sandbar. These guys are used to the ocean, and they see someone walking on the water, and they don't know what to make of it. This has never happened before. And so they're scared. They're scared of this this, this perceived being on the water. So again, we're just seeing that their desperation, they're, uh, they're being tormented by natural uh, forces, they're fearful of what's coming at them that they don't understand. Uh, third, they're forgetful of recent miracles. Verse 51, it says, when he got in the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And in verse 52, it says they, were, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So they're tormented by natural opposition. They're fearful of spiritual beings that they don't understand. They're forgetful of recent miracles. They, they, they're, they're terrified. They're forgetting what had just happened just a little bit before, that Jesus provided for his people and the loaves. They've forgotten Jesus' healing. They've forgotten all of these things. They're utterly astounded. Their hearts are hardened. 
They've forgotten what happened just literally that earlier, earlier that day, and they are hard-hearted to understand Jesus. They're not putting these things together. So we've seen the density at this point of the Pharisees. They don't understand what Jesus is doing. They don't get his miracles. They're trying to challenge it. They're trying to explain it away. They're trying to call foul, foul on Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes are dense when it comes to Jesus. They're not understanding. They don't want to understand Jesus. Well, now the disciples, they want to understand, but they're not getting it either. And we're going to get the start of a theme that's going to happen now for the next several chapters is that the disciples don't really get Jesus either. They're beginning, they will begin to sort of understand his deity along the way, but you're going to see that regularly Jesus is going to be in conflict with his disciples because they don't understand his mission. They don't understand his kingdom. They don't understand how, uh, how this is going together. And, and so here we see sort of the first evidence of that. That they're on this boat, Jesus comes, they can't recognize Jesus. He gets in the boat, he calms the waves, and they're just not understanding what Jesus is here to do, who he is and what he's done. And so, as we think about adverse situations that you and I might face, or are facing, do any of these things sound familiar to you? As you've faced adversity, maybe God has sent you into some difficult circumstances, and you're crying out, God, why? Why would you send me into this sort of situation? These disciples are trying to obey Jesus. Jesus told them to get in the boat and go across the lake. We're obeying Jesus, and now where is he? I don't know where he is. Uh, We can't seem to do what we normally could do. What is the point of this? And perhaps God sends us into difficulties and trials and into adversity, into a windstorm that overwhelms us, that torments us. Maybe he sends us into situations in order to reveal just how desperate we are and maybe how dense we are to understand what God is doing in our lives, right? How quickly they forget the mission of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, how vulnerable they are out on this water by the storm, by spiritual beings, forgetful, hard-hearted to understand what's going on. And so maybe some of these, maybe some of these resonate with you as you think back on your life. Maybe you're going through a difficult or some adversity right now. Perhaps God is wanting to do that. Perhaps God is playing the slice. Maybe he's what seems like sending you off in a direction that doesn't make sense in order that the wind might blow you to where he wants you to, right? Like maybe in that adversity, he's trying to expose some things about you. Uh, Some of the hard-heartedness, some of the fear that you have, some of the forgetfulness and hard-heartedness of your own heart. Perhaps, perhaps God isn't wasting, perhaps Jesus isn't wasting these adverse situations. And maybe it's not easy. They feel tormented in this situation and afraid. And so let's think about those things. What? We ask God these questions. Why would you lead us into this? What is the point of this experience? Why would you let this happen to me or to someone I love? God is committed to exposing our desperate need for him. He, will, he is not afraid of pain and difficulty. And he doesn't mind sending us off into a storm in order to reveal our desperate need for him. To bring some things to the surface that are hiding. That in prosperity, in when, th- when things are good, when situation is good, sometimes we don't get that exposed. But in adversity, these things are exposed. Exposing our inability in and of ourselves to save ourselves. They're... They're, they're stuck. They're stuck out in the middle of the lake. They can't deliver themselves from this natural opposition. They can't do anything against a spiritual being that walks on the waters. They can't do any of this. And it exposes what they don't quite see, exposes what we don't quite see, understand, or believe. So maybe we're meant to frame this as God exposing something in his disciples, revealing a little bit about where they're at and where he still needs to work their desperation and their density. But God in his kindness, Jesus in his kindness doesn't leave them there, right? 
he meets them in the midst of their adversity. And so that's what we see in point number two. Jesus meets them in adversity to reveal to the disciples his devotion to them and his divinity so that he is the one true God. Okay, so these two go together. Adversity is meant to show us how our desperate need for God and how dense and slow, of, slow to believe that we are. And at the same time, God in his grace, Jesus in his grace meets us right there, showing us a, his devotion even in the midst of our fear and our struggle and our difficulty and our forgetfulness. Jesus is happy to meet us there and then to reveal to us his divinity, his power, his glory to us. We see, first of all, Jesus prioritizes prayer with the Father over the worldly political ambitions of the crowd. Mark 6, 45 through 47, go back to the beginning there of our text. Immediately, he said to his disciples to get in, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he came, he took leave of them and went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out at the sea and he was alone on the land. So we see Jesus prioritizing time with his father in prayer. We've seen that already in the book of Mark. But also, part of what he's doing in dismissing them and sending them across the crowd and dismissing the crowd is revealed in John chapter 6. Mark doesn't say this, but John does as he, um, as he tells this story. He says, it says in John 6, 15, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. So if you put yourself in the context, put, a couple other, uh, put, put John's account next to Mark's account, you get this sense that why is Jesus sending his disciples away? Why is he dispensing the crowd? Is because the crowd, after eating the five, after the 5,000 people ate the loaves and the fish, they then wanted to go, revolution time. It is time to take over. Our, this is our Messiah. They recognize Jesus rightly, but they misunderstand how he's going to be king. And so they want to make him king. They want to do an overthrow. And Jesus, Jesus just quells that. That's not actually how we're going to do this. We're not going to do the kingship thing in that way. And so he withdraws to the mountain to pray. So he prioritized prayers with his father over the worldly political ambitions of the crowd. We see that. Mark, or John, helps us see that. It seems like maybe Jesus sends his disciples off to protect them from being caught up in the misguided mayhem. Uh, the, 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 um, the well-intentioned but um, misunderstood ambitions of the crowd, perhaps, is the case. We also see here that Jesus sees the struggles of his people and draws near to them. Look at verse 48. When he saw that they were making headway painfully, they're being tortured literally by the wind, for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. So Jesus sees the struggles of his people. I don't know if he's able to see them supernaturally or he's up on a mountain where he can just see them getting tossed around. I don't know. But he does, he is paying attention. That's what we get. Jesus hasn't forgotten about them. It's not like he doesn't care about them. He sees them, he cares about them. And he's going to draw near to them. He sees the struggles of his people and draws near to them. The fourth watch, that's Roman time for between 3 and 6 a.m. So they've been struggling all night without Jesus. They just try to keep things moving. And they're just getting nowhere. They're stuck in the middle of this lake. They're getting blown further and further off course. And it seems like, man, where is Jesus in all this? Well, Jesus sees and he knows and he's coming. And he's going to come at just the right time. Comes in the fourth watch of the night. He comes to them. Third, we see that Jesus reveals that he is the manifest glory of God. I just want to show you some cool stuff in this passage, some cool connections with the Old Testament. Look at verses 48 through 50. It says, Jesus walking on the sea, he meant to pass them by. Now that's weird. Why is he passing them by? Isn't he going out to go to them? Why is he wanting to pass by? Well, we're going to pull on that thread in just a minute of places in the Old Testament where it says God passed by. 
because Jesus is revealing his deity here. And this passing by, I think, is, is a thread, is pulling on a thread from the Old Testament where God passed by to show his glory. I'll show you that in just a minute. So walking on the sea, he meant to pass them by. They don't seem to recognize him, so I don't know if this is Jesus sort of like showing his div- divinity in some way. They're, he's walking on the water, but they don't recognize him, so is this some sort of, he, he's, he's almost glorified, perhaps? I don't know. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. He cried out for all... For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And here's what we see. Here's what we see. Uh, here's some connections to the Old Testament that I think Jesus is meaning to pull on. Well, some, some themes from the Old Testament to show that he is the manifest glory of God. In Job chapter 9, you remember the Job story? Job, or God, and Job is a righteous man. He's got a very vibrant family. He's got a very effective life. He's very rich and powerful. He's got many possessions and he worships God every day. And Satan comes before God's throne and says, Job only follows you because you give him good stuff. You make his life nice. You're, you're a vending machine to him. If you were to take away your blessings from him, if you were to have him suffer, he would turn on you in a heartbeat. He would curse you to his face because you're just a means to an end. He loves himself more than he loves you, God. And so if you were to all of a sudden make it painful for him, he would turn on you. And God essentially says, Satan, well, give him him your best shot, but you can't kill him. So he takes away, all of his kids die, all of his possessions are gone, he's struck with sores, and uh, even his wife uh, encourages him to just curse God and die. Everything's against him. He's got these three friends that come, and for a while they seem to be a comfort, and then they begin to pick at him. They begin to accuse him. They begin to bring up false charges against him. And then in Job chapter 9, as he's crying out to God, look what he says, Job 9, 8 through 11. So this is a man in adversity. Like, you know, these disciples are in adversity in the middle of the lake. They're just trying to follow God, and they're just trying to follow Jesus. They're just trying to obey Jesus, and they're in the midst of adversity. Well, multiply that times a thousand, and you have Job in the midst of adversity through no fault of his own. He's just walking with God. In fact, he's in adversity because he's walking with God. And look at that. So just see some of the parallels between the contexts here. Uh, Job 9, 8 through 11, Job says this. He says, Who alone stretches out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? The implication meaning only Yahweh can do that. Only God can walk on the sea. Only he has the power over creation. Who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south and does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Verse 11, Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. And you see, you see sort of a connection there? Only Yahweh can, can walk on the water. Only he can do this. And when he does, when he shows me his power, when he shows me his glory, I'm too dense to see it. I can't see it, right? And in that same way, we almost have Jesus, like coming to his people in the boat, in their adversity. He's walking on the water, and they can't see him. They don't perceive him, and he passes them by or he intends to pass them by. So perhaps Jesus is pulling on this Job theme here. These disciples in an affliction at God's direction are not able to see him. Job in an affliction under God's direction are not able to, is not able to see him either. And why does Jesus pass them by? There's two massive events in the Old Testament where God passes by as an act of revealing his glory. The first is Moses in Exodus 33. In Exodus, God has brought, God uses Moses and a bunch of miracles to bring God's people out of slavery into Egypt. And now they're in the desert and they're gathered around the mountain. Moses goes up on the mountain and in Exodus 32, the people get impatient and they make a a God. 
they make a golden calf. And when Moses comes back down, he crushes the calf. God brings judgment on his people. And then at the beginning of Exodus 33, essentially God says to Moses, you guys should probably just go. You just go on. I'm going to stay here at the mountain, but you guys go. You guys just go on. My presence won't be with you anymore, but just go. And Moses is like, no, God, you can't do that. No promised land is worth it if your presence isn't with us. What makes us special, what makes us strong, what makes, us, what makes life worth living is your presence with us, God. And so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where we are. If we have your presence, that's what matters to us. So please don't send us away. If your presence doesn't go with us, then just let us die here in the desert. And Moses pleads with God to not send him away. And God's pleased by that response. To go, yes, my presence is worth more than any prosperity. And then Moses asks God to show him his glory. God, show me your glory. And God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and he passes by, letting him see his glory as he goes by. Exodus 33, verses 18 through 20. Here's what he says. Moses says, please show me your glory. So this is in the midst of adversity again. God's people are being disobedient. God says, why don't you just go? If you guys want to go, just do your own thing. Go do your own thing. But my presence won't be with you. And Moses goes, no, the most important thing is your presence with us. Jesus does that same thing, right? In your adversity, he says, it is I, I'm here, I'm with you, right? His presence in the storm. And then Moses goes, please show me your glory, verse 18. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass by you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God reveals himself, reveals his glory in a manifest way that Moses can perceive with his eyes. He can see with his senses as, 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 as God himself passes by. The manifest presence and glory of God passes by Moses and he gets to see it. There's another time when Yahweh passes by someone and that's in 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, the people of Israel are uh, under the rule of King Ahab and Jezebel and there's lots of idolatry and Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a, to a, to a contest. Let's both build up altars, and whichever God answers by fire, Baal is the, uh, is the God of fire, so I'm going to give you home field advantage. You guys go first. And so the uh, hundreds of prophets of Baal begin to do their ceremonies, cutting themselves, doing all this stuff to try to get their God to respond by fire, and it doesn't work. And then Elijah takes the bull for the offering, douses it with water over and over again, and then through a simple prayer, Yahweh answers and, uh, and God shows himself to be victorious, but God's people don't actually, in response to that, turn for very long, and Moses get, or Elijah gets very discouraged. Jezebel wants to kill him, and so he flees off into the mountain, discouraged, adversity. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, God's prophet is discouraged. He's had this great victory. Ah, it doesn't seem like it's really changed much in the nation, and he's got a death warrant out for him. So he's driven off into exile by the wicked queen Jezebel. In 1 Kings 19, here's what it says, verse 9 through 13. Then he came to the cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, Why are you here, Elijah? 
He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I'm just trying to do what you told me to do, God, and it's not working. It's like a headwind. I am struggling here to try to get your people to worship you, and it's not working, right? Probably like the disciples in those boats. Like, man, I am trying to do the right thing, and I'm facing a headwind. I'm the only one left who's trying to do this. In verse 11, it says, and he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, Yahweh. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the pieces of the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, and the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after an earthquake, a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him, spoke in the midst of the storm and the wind comes a voice and God's presence comes near to him. So again, both of these cases of adversity, both these great men of God in the midst of difficulty, trying to walk with God, trying to do the right thing, finding adversity. And God comforts them by revealing his presence and speaking to them. Moses and Elijah will play a big role in Mark chapter 9 when Jesus goes up on the mountain and is transfigured before them and Moses and Elijah are there. So we're beginning to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the God of the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, were pointing to Jesus. All of the stories in the Old Testament are about Jesus. And so when Jesus passes by, he's acting like Yahweh. He's walking on water. Only Yahweh can do that. He's drawing near to his people in adversity and struggle, even when they're just trying to obey him. And then he says to them, take heart, literally in Greek, ego, eimi, I am. Do not be afraid. And he says exactly like what John talks about and when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, ego, eimi, in Greek, I am, Yahweh. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Take heart, Yahweh, I'm here. He uses the name of God. He says, it says, it is I here, interpreted, um, translated in our ESV, but it's literally I am, I am here. It's as if Yahweh himself is present with them and gets in the boat with them. And Jesus never wastes a struggle. He reveals himself as the image of the invisible God. You want the glory of God to come to you in the midst of your adversity? Look to Jesus. Hear his voice. And he gets into our boat. You wish to see God's glory and hardship? Look at Jesus with the eyes of faith. And what's fascinating is the things that became their greatest difficulty, the waves, is the very thing that carries Jesus to them, right? God uses the adversity, uses the difficulty to actually reveal himself to them. What's super interesting about this account is that we, we believe that this is, this is Peter, that Mark is telling through Peter's eyes. Peter is the eyewitness account behind Mark's gospel. And if we go to Matthew chapter 14 and read Matthew's account of this walking on water, we see that actually Peter gets out and walks on the water too. But Mark doesn't cover that. And I don't really, I haven't found a good reason why. Necessarily, Mark decides to omit that other than perhaps Peter doesn't want this story, as he tells it, to go, you know what, the point is Jesus and not what Peter did, right? Actually, maybe Peter in his own humility goes, and, and, I, and I was hard-hearted. I, I got out on the, boat, on the water, and then I immediately began to be afraid, and I sunk. And so I don't, I don't know, but it's just an interesting thing that in Mark's narrative, it says that they worshipped. Here in, in, or in, yeah, in Matthew's narrative, it says that they worshipped. In Mark's narrative, it says that they're hard-hearted and they're astonished. So it's just fascinating how between the two different people, Matthew looks back on the account and goes, 
Jesus revealed himself to us there. And Mark, when he looks at this account, goes, we realize just how dense we were in light of him, right? Like you see these two things, right? Both Mark and Matthew, two different people experiencing the same thing, are both pointing to this same thing is that in Mark's account, you've got, man, Jesus really did show how dense and hard-hearted we were. And at the same time, we saw how glorious he was. And that's always where the point of salvation intersects, right? Where I realize that I am a sinner, that I am broken before God, and he is the one who can save me, right? I can't save myself, but he can, right? Is that revelation of who he is and who we are come together. And so it's just an interesting, um, interesting tidbit that Peter doesn't recount to Mark his part of the story there. And um, I think we tend to think of our public failures as painful, and we'd rather forget them. And we tend to see them only with a negative perception. But in Mark's account, it seems like actually, Peter, it was in your first your faith, then your failure, that we experienced Jesus' rescue with you. He got in the boat and we worshiped him, right? It was actually, it's like Matthew's almost encouraged by Peter's faith in that, while Peter himself feels humbled by his failure. Again, I'm not exactly sure why Peter leaves it, why Mark leaves it out and Matthew keeps it in. But they but they harmonize, they come together and drive at this same point to show the desperate need for Jesus in all things, to keep our eyes on him and how glorious he is, how insufficient we are, how great he is. And so playing the slice, Jesus takes the long illogical path of adversity on purpose and ends up ministering likely to some of the same people as he lands back on the boat, as you look at verse 53. When they had crossed over, which is kind of ironic because they just end up kind of a mile and a half, two hours or two miles further down the beach from where they started. The wind just blew them around. Jesus brought them right back to shore. And when they had got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Who's the people? The people he just dismissed didn't get very far. And so they gather back up. They ran about the whole region and they began to bring the sick on their beds to wherever he, they heard that he was. And whenever he came in villages and cities or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. Just close the businesses down. Jesus is here, right? Most important thing is for people to come meet Jesus. So in the marketplaces, they implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. We just get this summary statement of Jesus' ministry as we begin to turn turn the page into more opposition in chapter 7. I think we're meant to just dwell here for a few minutes and go, Man, Jesus, Jesus really is what people are looking for. He really is the answer to people's problems here. And as they come back around, come back to where they started, Jesus continues to do ministry. And it's all about him. It's not about the disciples. It's about him, right? So some theologians and commentators debate, is this a revelation narrative with a rescue element? Or is this a rescue narrative with a revelation element? What's the point? What is Mark trying to get at? Is he trying to show Jesus' power to rescue, or is this meant to reveal who he is? Sometimes theologians love to try to put things in nice little neat boxes to go, is this a revelation element or a rescue story? Which is it? And it's like, well, the two always go together. God's revelation is always coming with rescue. God's rescue is always a revelation of his character. There's no problem, I don't think, in asking God why when things don't seem to make sense. When we're in the midst of a storm, we're trying to do the right things, we're trying to obey Jesus, and the headwinds just are exhausting us. I think it's okay to cry out and ask why, but we need to be careful, and I think this story tells us we need to be careful that we don't become forgetful. 
It says that they forgot about the loaves. They forgot about the miracle that literally just happened a few hours before. And in our adversity, we can begin to forget how faithful God has been with us, how much he has done for us. And so in our adversity, I don't think it's wrong to ask God why. But let's be careful not to fall into forgetfulness or hard-heartedness. And know that in all things, the answer to the why question is always, in every circumstance, the answer to the why question, we may not get all the questions answered, but one answer to the why is always this. God sends you into adversity to expose your desperation and your density. That's always the case. That God is going to use whatever adversity, whatever difficulty, whatever suffering to show your need for him. And he's going to meet you in that adversity to reveal to you his devotion and his divinity. Right? So why did so-and-so get cancer? Why did the car wreck take that person? Why, why the addiction? Why the difficulty? Why the assault? Why those? And we may not get some of the specific answers to those, which is to leave those in God's hands. But part of the why is always going to be to show your desperate need for me and to show my devotion and love for you. That I am with you, I see you, I meet you in the water, I come to you. And he gets in the boat in the midst of their adversity. We just see that over and over in scripture. Every difficulty, every trial exposes my need for Jesus and his sufficiency, his divinity. So without getting into all of the whys of all those things happen, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? We can always say, at least in part, it's to show our desperate need for God to intervene in our world, to come and make things right, to show our desperate need for him and to show his sufficiency and his devotion to us and here's uh yeah this look familiar josh (laughs) we've looked at this a few times haven't we and this is it i love this this is from a little book called the gospel centered life and i think this is true maybe i've shown you this before but yeah the point of conversion comes when we come in a, a greater awareness of god's holiness and our sinfulness and there's this gap that shows up right that we're unable to save ourselves And we need an atonement. We need a savior. We need a mediator. And spiritual maturity is just us growing ever more in our understanding of God. And he's always going to be bigger and greater. I think on into eternity, he's going to always be bigger and glorious a million years from now than he was a thousand years from now. That arrow will always be going up because God is infinitely perfect. God is infinitely, we will always be creatures. And at, at least until we're, until, we're, um, sanct- until we're glorified and with him, we're going to grow in our un- awareness of our own sinfulness. And that's one of the struggles of spiritual maturity is that we begin to go through life and we begin to go, I actually feel worse about my life than when I started as a Christian. It's like I'm just becoming more. It's not that I'm getting worse. It's just that I'm becoming more and more aware of where, all the areas that I fall short, all of the areas where I am dense and desperate where I am a, a sinner and I am not getting it. And that's why I need the gospel again and again and again and again to remind me of just how great God is and how much I need him. And I think that's what's happening in this story. What's the point of this story is I think is to just take these disciples on a spiritual, um, a spiritual maturity test, right? To just show how desperate their need is for him, how desperate and dense they are. They're not getting it, their hardness of heart. They've seen so many great things about Jesus, yet they don't get it. And yet Jesus is so glorious and he draws near. And what happens is that when as we continue to grow, we begin to love Jesus more. You see the cross in the middle there? 
the gospel becomes more and more beautiful and glorious as we realize just what Jesus purchased for us. How much sin he actually paid for and how he has made me right with a God that's far more distant, far more glorious, far more holy than I ever could imagine, right? So that's what that cross growing is that as we grow in our knowledge of God and in the depths of our sin, we become more and more grateful for Jesus. And I think that's what's happening in this story. So a few questions and we're done. Just some things to ask ourselves. What affliction or struggle has God led you into? You could think of the past. Maybe you're in the midst of one right now. Where Jesus says, hey, get in the boat, go across the lake, and then you're just in the middle of a windstorm. Like, well, this isn't, (laughs) I'm trying to do the right thing, and things don't seem to be working out, right? And where's Jesus in all this? So just identify that in your own heart or life. And then how has that experience exposed your desperation and your density? Where I don't, I'm not trusting in the promises of God. Where I, man, I've become overconfident in my own knowledge, in my own morality, in my own, in my own ability. Where is this struggle exposing where I have become self-reliant or arrogant or prideful? And really this windstorm needs to just kind of take all the strength out of me so that I realize that my strength was not my own to begin with. And where is this revealing like, man, why am I not getting this? Like the loaves, the loaves, like you just forgot how the Lord provided for you just a little bit before. Where is my heart hard to believe? Number three, how has Jesus revealed his devotion and deity in the middle of this hardship? Am I looking for Jesus in my hardships? Am I just asking why? Am I feeling sorry for myself? Or do I go, no, what is Jesus showing me about his devotion to me, about his power, about his deity? He's not going to waste this struggle. He's not going to waste this affliction. And then will we, you, repent of hard-heartedness and receive Jesus by faith? As he steps into our boat, will we receive him as Yahweh, as God in the flesh who's come to us in all of his glory and his power? Or will we be hard-hearted like these disciples? That's very kind of Jesus that even in the midst of their hard-heartedness to say take heart I'm with you don't be afraid they don't get it and that's okay he still draws near to them because ultimately their salvation rests on him not them right so the fact that he is still committed to be with them is the most important thing that he will hold us fast right that's what we'll sing here in just a moment when I fear my faith will fail he will hold me fast He came to me in my affliction. He came to me in my fear. He came to me on the waves and the wind. And I was hard-hearted. I was forgetting his goodness. I was forgetting his grace. And he got into my boat and said, I am here. I am here. I am with you. I I am God made manifest that's present with you. So let's receive him by faith. Let's bow our heads and just take a moment to reflect on how God may be using afflictions in our life to reveal our need for him and his sufficiency And then let's ask for soft hearts, soft hearts to see and receive what he is doing in our lives. Oh God, we give thanks for this scripture passage very odd in some ways that you would just send your disciples out in a boat 
and just in, in order basically to just show their need for, for you and your sufficiency to them to use in the midst of their fear and their hard-heartedness to reveal yourself as the I am, the one who comes to your people. Uh, so Lord, we thank you that you have come and help us not to let you pass us by, um, that we would cry out to you, that you would draw near to us, and that we would hear you say, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, and that you would come into our lives, the boat of our lives, the boat of our church, and that your presence would bring calm and would bring strength and would bring renewal. Uh, so Lord, do whatever humbling you need to do in our own hearts and lives, and then open our eyes to just how glorious and great Jesus is, even in the midst of adversity. God, we, uh, we ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.